Morning, everyone. Great to be back. And um, thanks for setting that up, Robin. That's just brilliant. It's good, actually. This time, the the front, the first few rows are actually full, which is fantastic. You guys are. I know it's not 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 afraid of me anymore. Um, if you have a Bible, or you've got a phone, or you steal your neighbor's phone. We can open um, the scriptures to John chapter 20, and we're going to be carrying on this um, great series, the Transform series, and I'm going to be reading from the uh, North Island version, John chapter 20. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Great passage of scripture. And... Being a lawyer, I like legal movies. One of my favorite legal movies is A Few Good Men. I know, I'm showing my age. But has anyone here seen A Few Good Men? There must be a few amongst us. Oh, there's a brilliant moment in the movie, right? Tom Cruise plays Daniel Caffey, the military lawyer, and he's cross-examining Jack Nicholson, who plays Colonel Jessup. And um, it's, it's a brilliant cross-examination of Colonel Jessup um, in the movie. But there's a, actually um, a, better, a better part of the movie is there is a, there's, a, there's a wonderful line in the movie where Tom Cruise, Daniel Caffey, he's preparing for trial. And he says to his colleague this interesting line. He says, it doesn't matter what I believe, it only matters what I can prove. It doesn't matter what I believe, only matters what I can prove. And I have shared that line with a few clients over the years. But I want to suggest that Tom Cruise, Daniel Caffey, was only partly right. When we consider that comment comment in a Christian context, I want to suggest today it does matter what we believe and what we can prove. Um, I don't think it's right to say we don't need evidence, only faith. And I don't think it's right to say I won't believe unless the evidence is irrefutable. See, evidence and faith go hand in hand. Like, evidence is the foundation on which faith is built. We need both. We need evidence and faith. And when I talk about faith, I'm actually meaning it in a a much broader context than just the Christian context. I'm talking about faith which says, 
If I present this evidence to you, what story, what narrative will you believe based on the evidence that's presented? You may have uh, been on a, been on a jury, tr- jury trial and been selected and not been challenged by the defence lawyer and you've taken your seat. Um, <clears throat> and the Crown lawyer gets up and in his or her opening address says, there is evidence that I wanna, we're going to be presenting through the, through the trial. And based on the evidence, we want you to believe A, B, and C. We want you to believe a story based on the evidence. And then the defence lawyer gets up and says, based on the evidence, we want you to believe a different story, a different narrative, X, Y, Z. See, evidence is the gateway to belief. And if you think about it, most of the time, there's no such thing, generally, as irrefutable evidence. There is really no such thing as irrefutable evidence most of the time. That's why the law focuses on this idea of evidential threshold, right? Like in, this, in civil law, which is my area of practice, the law says you only have to prove on the balance of probabilities. 50-50, lady justice, the scales, 50-50 on the balance of probabilities. That's in the civil jurisdiction. In the criminal jurisdiction, the first thing you'll hear as a jury member is that the judge will say the Crown has to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt. Why? Because there's no such thing as irrefutable evidence. Ultimately, as a jury member, at the conclusion of the trial, based on the evidence you have been presented, you have to believe which story, you have to believe which story is, is true based on kind of your, your own personal view. And then everyone's got to line up, all those jury members. And just when you thought this was a lecture on the law of evidence, I want to suggest today that when it comes to the resurrection, there is evidence for the resurrection. The only question we're left with, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is what we will believe based on the evidence that's presented. It's not irrefutable evidence, but in my view, there's sufficient evidence, which leaves us with the question as to what do we believe about the resurrection. So I'm going to ask us three questions this morning. I want to ask three questions as we consider the evidence together. And so my first question is, who was the risen Christ? Who was the risen Christ? Imagine for a moment, you were there that night. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week, John says. And imagine Jesus appears. The first thing you're thinking is, is this a dream? Is this a vision? Is this a figment of my imagination? Is Jesus actually appearing in front of me? Am I seeing a ghost? Is this my imagination just running over time. I mean, is this the same Jesus that was buried three days ago? Is this the same Jesus, or is this just a vision, a ghost, a figment of my imagination? See, at the heart of the question is, what was the nature of Christ's appearance that day? Firstly, was it just a vision? Was it just a vision? There's a great little story in Acts chapter 9. We read about Saul, and Saul was on his way to Damascus, and he was persecuting the early Christians, and he was putting them in prison and murdering some, and the story goes that suddenly there was this beautiful vision out of heaven, and the risen Christ appeared to Saul, and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? And some scholars have suggested that that night in the house, the disciples simply experienced a vision similar to the vision that Saul had on his road to Damascus. So was the risen Christ, was it just a vision, a hologram, Obi-Wan Kenobi? Was it just a vision? Some scholars say 
It was actually just a spiritual body. It was like a ghost. A non-material, physical body. Non-physical body. And people look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and they suggest that the resurrected body of Christ was actually a spiritual body. And when we think spiritual, some scholars suggest something equivalent to a ghost, a non-material, non-physical body. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle talks about the resurrection and what kind of body we will have um, in our resurrected state. And he says in verse 35, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Man, he's got a brilliant mind. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another, and the star differs from one star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. This is the key part. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And some scholars have suggested that Jesus was also raised as a spiritual body, that he was really a ghost. So is Paul saying that Christ's body post-resurrection was really just a spiritual, non-physical body? A really good book that I encourage you to read. I'm going to encourage you to read lots of books is The Challenge of Jesus by N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright is a really good New Testament theologian. Time magazine actually named him one of the um, top five New Testament theologians of this century. Um, And he writes, when Paul speaks, by the way, you're going to need your glasses for this one. Sorry about the text. That's very much, very small. When Paul speaks of the future resurrection as a spiritual body, he does not mean a non-physical body. He is contrasting the present body with the future body. The Greek words somophysikon are translated to natural body, from which we derive the word psyche, which is often translated as soul. Of course, Paul was not saying that our natural body is a non-physical soul. Look at me. I'm physically present. He was saying the natural body is animated by our soul. Spiritual body is translated from the Greek, soma, won't bother with that one. This means also a body, but this time animated by the spirit. Still a body, but this time animated by the spirit. Paul is then saying our, not, our natural body is a physical body animated by the soul. The future body is a transformed body animated by God's spirit. Norman Geisler, another theologian, writes, so spiritual body does not denote what is immaterial and invisible, but what is immortal and imperishable because it is controlled by the spirit. So I'm going to suggest a third option is that, it was, um, that Christ's body post-resurrection was a transformed physical body. A transformed physical body. Norman Geisler continues, there is, he says, there is so much evidence and support of this idea that Christ's body post-resurrection was a transformed physical body. I mean, Jesus was touched by Thomas in John's gospel. Reach out, Thomas, and touch me. Mary, in John chapter 20, 17, kind of clings on to Jesus, and Jesus says, don't cling to me, Mary. I must go to the Father. And then 
breakfast on the shore of Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, the next chapter. He has food and he eats with his disciples. And so in answer to that first question, who was the risen Christ? I want to tell you this morning it was a transformed physical body. Not a vision, not a ghost, but a transformed physical body. And I did some research. I checked the Summit website and I checked the statement of belief. And it says, we believe Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. So we, can, we all believe the same thing and we can all be friends. Um, <laughs> who was the risen Christ? A transformed physical body. And that's going to become really important for the rest of my message. So if you forget everything else, and I'm sure you won't. But just remember that one key point. This, this, the, the, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't a bad piece of pizza the night before and something going on in their, in their, in their minds. It was the, the transformed physical body of Jesus, which is beautiful. <clears throat> so, next question, why the fact it was a transformed physical body, why is that important? Why does it matter? This is really important. Because John chapter 20 verse 1 says, early on the first day of the week, John chapter 20 verse 19 says, on the evening of the first day of the week. John, the writer, is trying to emphasize something new is happening. This is the beginning of something. And N.T. Wright says that John is trying to emphasize this is the first day of new creation. This is the first day of new creation. It was the first day of God's new creation. Sunday was the first day of the week. It was the birthday of God's new creation. The first day. And new creation means God is not abandoning the old world, but he is redeeming all of life. New creation means God is not abandoning this world, but he is redeeming all of life, as evidenced in the transformation of Christ as a physical body. God is redeeming all of life. This was the, God's mission is the redemption of the whole person, not a disembodied soul. God's mission is the redemption of the whole person, not disembodied souls. I went to Rangitata College, and I was an okay student until the end. But my favorite subject in my final year, and I should have been a lot more attentive, but in my final year, I really wanted to be a pastor, and I completely tuned out. I was very interested in uh, my classics class and Socrates. Socrates has always fascinated me, the philosopher, and um, he was sent, <clears throat> he was put on trial for misleading the young people of Athens with his philosophical views. And he went, to, uh, he went to trial, and at the end of the trial, they condemned him. And they condemned him to, to drink poison hemlock. And in his final hours before his death, Plato records Socrates, his, some of his views about death. And Socrates essentially says, death does not matter because upon death, my soul will be ultimately liberated from the prison of my body. He, had, he said, I have no issue with drinking this poison hemlock and bringing my life to an end because at last my body will be done away with and my soul will be liberated for, for good. The, it was built on that Greek worldview. The Greek worldview says there's the material what we see and there's the immaterial what, immaterial what we don't see. And this material world, according to Socrates and, the, and Greek thinking, is largely redundant. God's not interested in this material world. He's not... Um, 
not God, but sorry, uh, philosophy, philosophers are not interested in this material world. What's important is gaining wisdom for the soul so that one day your soul will be liberated from the prison of the body and moved into the next life. Let me say this morning, when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't his disembodied soul that went into that house that day, that evening. It wasn't his disembodied soul. It was a transformed physical body. We have to contrast this uh, this Greek thinking, which is very dualistic. Material things and immaterial things, but material things don't really matter. All that matters is the soul. The Hebrew thinking, Jewish thinking, was that God is here to redeem all of life. Because Christ rose from the dead, this this, this physical being, this transformed physical being. Secondly, the mission of the early church was not saving disembodied souls for the next life, but the redemption of the whole person. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about character. Lots of, you know, obviously there's so much material in the New Testament. So much of it is about character and spiritual formation. I mean, why bother with character formation? Why bother with character development? if all that matters at the end of it all is a disembodied soul. The mission of the early church was discipleship, not saving disembodied souls. The mission of the early church included spiritual formation, right? It included helping people grow and become more like Christ. What's the point if it's just a disembodied soul that goes at the end of it all? Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus tells a disciple to go into all the world and save souls. No, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. And discipleship is about our body. Discipleship is about the way we parent our kids. Discipleship is about the way we use our money. Discipleship is about work and how we engage with work and our relationships. Discipleship, the good news is a whole of life gospel, right? And that's because we go back to the resurrection. Jesus, his body was a physical transformed body. The mission of the early church was built on that. And then there was this other idea that that when Jesus actually appeared that evening, he said to his disciples, peace. He spoke peace. The Greek for peace is Irene Hamin, which means shalom. And being in Israel earlier this year, there's a you know, you're greeting people all the time with shalom. It is my favorite word. And in his great book, not the way it's supposed to be, author Cornelius Platinger, he describes shalom. He says, what is shalom? Shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom. And what God offers post-resurrection is shalom. That's what he offers his disciples. Wholeness, full wholeness, redemption, wholeness in human life flourishing, not a ticket to an afterlife with a disembodied soul. That's what he said to his disciples that night, shalom. Thirdly, 
what did the appearance of the physically transformed Christ mean? What does that mean for his disciples? And what does it mean for disciples living in Auckland in the 21st century on October, sorry, November the uh, 10th? Well, post-resurrection, Jesus issues a challenge to his disciples. He said, even though the doors are locked right now, I want you to look outside the doors, and I want you to look out the windows, and I want you to look out into the world. Because he says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I love that about Jesus, right? The disciples have the doors locked. Cowering in fear, and that's the thing about Jesus. He's like this great coach who says, I know where you're performing at right now, but with me, I can take you to another level. The doors are locked right now, but I'm still sending you. The doors are locked right now, but I'm still sending you. So what does it mean to be sent into the world? I'm going to give you three practical um, thoughts just to, to, to work with. The first one is a stolen idea. And most of my ideas are stolen, let's, let's, be, let's be honest. The world is my playground, which was an old Qantas ad. I remember watching this guy um, in this, those billboards, you know, the, the guy skateboarding down the Great Wall of China. I loved it. Anyway, the world is my playground. That's the first thought I have. <clears throat> On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked. Fear had gripped the disciples. And because they had started to believe the narrative that because the body was missing, the Roman soldiers would be coming after them next. That's what the text says. They, they were in fear of the Jewish authorities. They were in fear of the Roman authorities. Who was coming next? That's the problem with fear. It's part lie and part truth. There was some truth to what, what they were feeling. The truth was, the body of Jesus was missing. But they didn't have all the information. And so they made things up in their mind, which is what we do with fear, right? And that's what makes fear really difficult to overcome. Two years ago, I went through a really difficult time personally, and I was gripped by fear over a really difficult situation. And it took, um, it took a long time just to try and work that thing through. And the thing that I realized is that Christ appears in the midst of our fears. Jesus didn't say, hey, Simon, when you dealt with your fear, then you can come back and talk to me. That Jesus was right there helping me deal with my fear. And I had some great friends like Bryn and Beck here at the church who helped me, supported me. But it was a really difficult time, and I had to come back. And it was this passage in John 20 that I realized, actually, Jesus stands in the middle of the house and says, peace. Simon, I'm with you. I stand in the midst of your fear and speak peace. Christ appears in the midst of our fear. Secondly, Christ's resurrection confirms that he has overcome arguably our greatest fear as human beings, which is the fear of death. He can help us, and if he can overcome death, he can help us overcome our other fears. Our other fears kind of pale into insignificance compared to the fear of death. Thirdly, <clears throat> Christ's resurrection means I don't have to live life with the doors locked. In the midst of their fear, Jesus comes and speaks peace. And the idea of peace was not this warm, fuzzy emotion. It was a platform. It was the inspiration. It was the encouragement they need to be sent out there into the world. Because you know what happens? 50 days later, almost seven weeks later, Peter, who was there that night, filled with fear, with the doors locked, that same Peter, 50, <clears throat> uh, 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, stood up and spoke to thousands of people and preached to thousands of people. And people came to Christ and, and people discovered faith 
That was the same Peter that night, only 50 days before, living in fear with the doors locked. That's got to be encouraging. The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that same Peter, he was there that night with the doors locked. And so I want to say that God actually wants us to embrace life. He says to me, Simon, embrace life. Embrace the world in which you live. Don't live with anxiety and fear about what might be coming up next or what might be around the corner or constantly using, letting your imagination run. Trust me in the present. I'm with you and you, the world is your playground. Enjoy the world in which I have made. I'm with you, Simon. <clears throat> St. Irmaeus, the famous bishop, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Secondly, the world is my project. You know, all sorts of social change movements have been inspired post-resurrection. The early church was a resurrection movement. It It was only birthed because of the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, the early church would have faded into insignificance. All sorts of change, social change movements down through the centuries have been led by Christians who believe that God came to redeem all of human life, not just disembodied souls. William Wilberforce and slavery and Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, Mother Teresa and her commitment to the poor and mission organizations and humanitarian organizations and William Booth's vision for the Salvation Army back in England in the 19th century. All of these people inspired by this idea that God came to redeem all of human life. In his, in his great book, The Way of the Lord, I, I read The, the Way of the Lord is a, is a wonderful book. It's a kind of a devotional. that you, If you're ever going to travel to Israel, I encourage you to read the book. It's, kind of a, it's a book that helps you kind of prepare for a bit of a pilgrimage to Israel. Really good book by um, N.T. Wright. And he writes, The resurrection spreads out before us the map of God's new world. When Jesus of Nazareth came out of the tomb on Easter morning in his transformed, renewed body, having gone through death itself and out the other side, he gave the world the first glimpse of the fact that God is in the business, not of abandoning this old, sad world and taking us off to a disembodied heaven, but of redeeming, renewing, transforming this world so that everything everything that has been good, lovely, just, holy, beautiful is enhanced and purified and ennobled, raised to new heights of glory. Easter offers us a map of that new world, a map for explored, a map to encourage us to get out there and get on with the task. The world is my project. And thirdly, the world is my place. God doesn't, doesn't say to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit goes with them. We don't go into the world alone. And the Spirit was at work all the way through the scriptures here. At Genesis 1, we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and gave birth, to new, gave birth to creation. And then in John chapter 20, verse 1, we read about Christ coming out of the tomb, and we realize that the Spirit was at work again, giving life to Christ's body. So the Spirit was at work bringing creation to life, and then the Spirit was at work bringing new creation to life, and then Paul goes further. In Romans 8.11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, the same spirit who was there in Genesis, there at creation, there at new creation, giving life to Christ's body, is now living in you and me. Our place is out there in the world. God didn't call us to escape. He called us to be sent into the world. And his spirit goes with us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you and I. 
So wherever we find ourselves, you know, at work, challenges or challenges at home or challenges with relationships, being a Christian witness, all of what makes up life, it's saying, God, actually your spirit is living inside of me. And it's not just any spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that gave life to Christ, that same spirit that was there, present on the first day of new creation. Let me finish with a story. <clears throat> I'll just get you to come up. Um, you can come up, Dave, and the, the band as I just kind of finish off. <clears throat> Vedran Smelovich lived in an apartment in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War. And on May 27, 1992, he was um, practicing his cello upstairs in his apartment. Um, and Sarajevo had been completely bombed out by this time. It was um, just ruins. The city was in ruins. There were snipers still out. Snipers were everywhere. Bombs had descended and killed thousands. But on that particular day, May 27, 1992, 22 people were lining up to collect some bread when a bomb was dropped and killed all of them. Vedran was a very well-known cello player um, in Bos Bosnia at the time, and he decided after this incident for 22 days straight, he would take his cello, wander down out of his apartment and into the ruins, and he would play his cello. And he would play it for 22 days straight to honor the 22 people who had died. He had wandered into those deserted streets in the midst of those ruins with snipers above, and the story goes that at moments the snipers stopped. His most famous concerto was concerto in G minor, which he was well known for, and he would just sit there and play. And when you think about the resurrection as Christians, you, you kind of hear these messages about resurrection a lot, which is fantastic, because it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Like, we wouldn't be here without the resurrection. What would be the point? Well, that's what Paul the Apostle said anyway. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. And you can kind of go home today and go, wow, that was interesting, and have a debate about it over lunch and so on and so forth. But I hope that actually something inside of you will be a little bit like Bedrin, the cello player, who decides because of the resurrection, because of 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If, any of, if anyone is in Christ, she is a new creation. What does it mean to live this new creation life post-resurrection? Because that's what we're called to live. And I want you to hold firmly to this vision as you leave today of Vedran playing his cello in those ruins. Because all around, around us there's problems and destruction and decay and difficulty, right? You go to work tomorrow and you, go to, you, do, you do life and there's issues and challenges. But Vedran playing his cello is really a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of someone who's prepared to do something different, to live a different way in the midst of destruction and decay all around. So as we leave here this morning, I just want you to have a picture of Vedran in your mind playing his cello amongst all of those ruins and realize that's what it means to live this new creation life post-resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for my friends here at Summit and uh, God, we just thank you for... 
that this wonderful story, Jesus, that it wasn't just a ghost or some figment of the imagination, but it was you, Lord. It was the risen Lord that changed those disciples, and then they were sent out from their Lord into the world. And I just pray for all of my friends today, Father, that you would encourage us with that resurrection hope. Help us, Lord, whatever situations we might be facing right now, Father, to live that new creation life, that in Christ we are new creations, Lord. Help us, Father, to really live that out in our daily lives. Father, we can't do it alone, so we just pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to have the inspiration and courage that someone like Bedrin had to kind of, by analogy, get out our own cello and play that new creation song. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.